you take your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 2, to begin with, Acts chapter 2. Last week we started a new series, book study series, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. This week is communion, so we take um, a little bit of a break after just the one message, but they're related, what we talk about this morning. They are definitely related. We're going to read, just to begin with, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. This is the day of Pentecost, this is after Um, or rather I should say this is after the day of Pentecost, but only shortly after the church has been kick-started by the Holy Spirit and through Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and suddenly thousands are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, their Lord and their Savior. And it says in verse 42 of these believers, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we long to see your spirit at work within your church again. We praise you, Lord, when we do see the spirit at work. Part of us, maybe a selfish part, would love to see these mighty throngs and see that you're using us. We don't know, Lord, uh, what you will in each place. But we know that your spirit is active. We know that your word is going forth. We know that people are being saved. And we know that world over there are millions of brothers and sisters in Christ who are uh, today worshiping you, proclaiming your name, and having their fellowship with you and with each other. We're part of that, Lord. And we thank you for making us part of that family. Lord, I ask that you would help us here as we are in this place, a small reflection, a small subset of that larger family. Help us to act like it. Help us to live like it. Help us to remember that we belong to you and Christ. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and as such, we belong to each other. Lord, thank you for this community of believers. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for how we love each other. Thank you for the love that I have known from them and their faithfulness, Lord, as friends, brothers, and sisters to me. Lord, help us to reflect you everywhere we are and especially as a body so that those looking on would marvel and know that you are here, that you are active, and that clearly something has changed in this group of human beings. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
There are two things I want to do here with you this morning as we gear up for communion. Two things I want to do. First of all, I want to teach you, probably don't need to teach you, more like remind you that communion is a community supper. Communion is a community supper. That's number one. Number two, I want to teach you, maybe remind you, but I feel like this one might be more teaching you, uh, that communion looks ahead to the great feast in the kingdom and thus pictures communion with the triune God. Can I say that again? I want us to see together today that communion looks ahead to the great feast in the kingdom and thus pictures communion with the triune God. So that when we come to the communion table and we have communion together, we're communing with God and we're looking ahead to that great communion that will be a perfect communion. Because God's always perfect, but will be finally be perfect. And a part of that great communion And we will be with God, and God will be with us as his people for all eternity, having put his names on our foreheads, identifying us with himself, and never knowing, never again, not even a microsecond of separation again from our God. That's what communion's about, folks. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. First, communion is a community Supper. In fact, that's the title of the message today is the Community Supper. Communion is a community supper. We just read from Acts chapter 2. I told you where it came from, uh, what it's about right after Pentecost, the joy, the, the fervor, the excitement, the amazement of what God has done. The Holy Spirit is indwelling his people. Peter said this is like what Joel prophesied when the Spirit's poured out and and on the sons and the daughters, the, the young men, the old men, and everyone is proclaiming and seeing visions. And, and, and it's clear that God is at work in this church. And they are with one voice proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Savior and He is Lord. A radical message to the Jews. A crucified Messiah? And the church is going, yes, And the Holy Spirit through the church is going, and let me show you. And the whole watching world is going, oh my goodness, something's happening, and we want to know about that. And one of the things it says, look again in verse 42, they, these believers, are continually devoting themselves to a number of things. One, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Today we call that the Word of God. They're devoting themselves to the Word of God. It says they are devoting themselves uh, to fellowship, being together, sharing together the community, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's table, and to prayer. So this early church, this off-to-a-great-start church, is proclaiming who Jesus is, and they're saying, well, we need to know more about him. So we are diving into his word We are learning about him from the apostles who speak with authority. We are sharing together. We are fellowshipping together. We are a community together. And we're eating together, commemorating the Lord's um, death, burial, and resurrection. And we are praying together. If you take very, very quickly, go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. 
we have spent time during communion services in days gone by, in some detail in Acts chapter 2, and in some detail in 1 Corinthians 11. And we read from 1 Corinthians 11 pretty much every time we have a community, or excuse me, maybe we should just call it that, a communion service. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For the first place, when you come together as a church, the community, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, you guys are splitting over who's approved and who's not. And you're dividing, instead of the church coming together, you're coming together really just along seams that you guys have created. And you're proving this person's in, that person's out. You're not acting like a community. Verse 20, therefore when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you may call it what you like, but it's not, the, it's not communion. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's, don't call it that, because that's not what you're doing. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and they would have whole meals with it. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Yes, they're getting drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So they're having a potluck, but they're keeping their pot on their table, and they're not sharing it with anybody. And they're shaming those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What is the unworthy manner? It's in violation of the community. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on and talks about this judgment, this chastening that God brings on them for failing to understand the community nature, the sacrificial, self-giving nature that is supposed to characterize the Lord's table. He says, this is not what it's about. So first of all, communion is a community supper. And you've heard us, uh, I say us, I mean, and we've been preaching on this for years and years and years, so the us includes more than just me. But you've been hearing this for a long time. Communion is a community supper. But now I want to get to that second part. Communion looks ahead to the messianic feast. Enjoyed in the kingdom after Christ returns and thus pictures that communion with the triune God. Now turn to Luke 22. And there are a bunch of passages we could look at. We just are not going to have the time. But Luke 22, and then we're going to have one more after that in the Old Testament where we're going to end. Luke 22. This is... Uh, the Passover, supper, the evening before Christ is crucified. He is within hours of his betrayal and trial and crucifixion. This is that last supper. Verse 14. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, 
He, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But uh, then he goes on and he talks about uh, the one who would betray him. We'll stop there. Notice what Jesus says. Look again in verse 16. Verse 15 and 16, he says, I have seriously wanted to eat this meal with you. I've really been looking forward, Jesus says to his disciples, to having this Passover with you before I go to my suffering because, verse 16, I'm never going to eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is the last Passover I'm going to celebrate with you, Jesus says. This is the last time we're going to get to do this. Now, Jesus didn't mean he was never going to eat again. We know after he was raised from the dead, he did eat with the disciples again to demonstrate that he was bodily, physically resurrected from the dead. But what he does mean is that this special feast, in this special feast environment that commemorated the Passover, commemorated and celebrated God's deliverance, having passed over the people for judgment in Egypt, To do it again, it's going to have to wait for Christ's return. And so in the meantime, he institutes with his disciples what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. In a remembrance, much as the Passover remembered God's passing over the children of Israel in Egypt, we celebrate the communion meal as a reminder, as a memorial for what Christ did for us as that lamb whose blood was shed in our place so that God in his judgment could pass over us. Because of what Jesus did, God's judgment does not rest upon those who trust in Christ. That's good news. That's amazing news. And so this feast, not that we actually make it much of a feast these days, but this bread and this cup from the vine is a, memorial reminding us and celebrating what Christ did. But Jesus says he's looking forward. And in what he said, he's looking forward to his return and to a feast. He says, I'm going to do it again in the kingdom. Right? He says, I'm, we're not doing this, I'm not doing this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 26 uh, verse 26 to 29, he says, that's when, well, that's when I will partake again, is in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is looking forward to his return and to the marriage feast, the banquet that would be the culmination of his salvation and the celebration of his relationship with his people. Jesus is facing the cross. He's getting ready to go to the worst horror that anyone has ever faced, ever. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Dying for us. And he says, I'm not going to get to do this again. But I'm looking forward to that day when we do it together. And he says, when it is fulfilled, the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
when all of this comes together in the kingdom of God. Now what I want to do at this point, and this is where I want us to end today, is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. Isaiah is a massive book, 66 chapters. It is rich, it is deep, and frankly, sometimes it is just plain confusing. This isn't right in the middle, but it's close to the middle of the book. We have a prophecy here. Isaiah 25. There's a prophecy here. Actually, 24 and 25. And this is what I want us to look at today. Now, start in verse 1. We just, we're going to get a little bit of our context here. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans from long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. In other words, you uh, do justice. You execute judgments. Verse 3, therefore a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. This is said in the midst of, of Judah's trials, of the kingdom of Judah, as Isaiah prophesies what's going to happen, and Babylon is coming, and they're just surrounded by nations that want nothing more than to decimate uh, the people of Israel and to destroy them forever. Not much different than being a believer in this very hostile world. But verse 3 says, A strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. The ruthless come and they've, they, they, just, they bring everything to bear. And literally, when you lived in a walled city, the thing you were terrified of was a powerful nation coming against your wall and knocking it down. And boy, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were very good at knocking down walls. But when they come, the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Not the walls of Jerusalem but the wall that is God. You will not defeat this wall. Verse five, like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens, that is strangers. Like heat, uh, by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. So that's good news. That's deliverance. That's a promise that God is going to show up on the scene and he is going to end the threat from hostile peoples. He is going to be revered. He is going to be praised. His name is going to be lifted up even by those who really want nothing to do with him. That's the return of Christ. But look what follows in verse 6. And this is amazing. We're going to read verses 6 through 9. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death 
for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen is right. So let's notice a few things. First of all, let's observe who's providing this meal in verse 6. Look who's providing the meal. The Lord of hosts will prepare this meal. The Lord, all in capitals there. That's the covenant name of God. That is the name Yahweh. This is God in his personal name, his covenant-making, covenant-keeping name. This is his name that says, I am who I am. This is the God, and there is no one else like him. This God, the creator God, the covenant God of Israel, he is the one who prepares this meal. And he says he is the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. He's the one who commands all the hosts of heaven. Any authority, any power, any principality, any ruler, anyone that ever claims to exercise authority in this world or even in the heavenly realms, God is Lord over them. He is the I am, and there is no one else. And he is pictured here in verse six as a chef, as a host. Like Jesus at the head of the table with his disciples. Here, take this as the host of the, of the feast. Now it's God on high, Yahweh himself, Preparing a feast for who? For all the peoples. Look at that. For all peoples. That's not just the Jews, that's the Gentiles too. That's you and me. We're part of this now. If we put faith in Jesus Christ, we're in this scene. Zoom in and 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 zoom in on this vision. Can you see yourself sitting there on the grass on this mountainside? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in this scene as the Lord of hosts, Yahweh God, creator and savior and sustainer of all, spreads his arms and says, Welcome to my feast. Welcome to my family. Notice where it's provided. For all peoples on this mountain. What is this mountain? Look back at chapter 4, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 24, verse 23. Chapter 24, verse 23. So just one verse before we started reading. Verse 23. Then, and by the way, the, the, where he ends this chapter is in what God is going to do in recreating everything. But then verse 23, Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. Those mighty lights in the heavens that people have throughout history tended to worship, they will be as nothing. Why? Verse 23, For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. The Lord of hosts himself is going to reign from Jerusalem. And he calls the peoples to himself and says, now come to my banquet. Come to my feast. Come be a part of my kingdom. Come be a part of my family. Enjoy the wealth of my family. Think about that. God on high is going to share the riches of his wealth with us. 
in this lavish feast, represented in this lavish feast. And notice what's provided. This is a lavish, a rich banquet, full of good things. Full of beautiful and tasty things. And you read the description of what this banquet encompasses in verse 6, and it may not exactly appeal to our modern-day tastes, but please understand, when this was written, as the Jews would have read this, they would have understand that what's being described here in this banquet is rich beyond description. It is a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Like, that's a lot of meat and wine. Which to us, again, doesn't exactly jive with our idea of a feast. But you could plug that in there, and it would say the same thing. Think about how you splurge for Thanksgiving dinner. Think about how you splurge for Christmas dinner. And not everyone does the same sorts of things for those dinners, but think about how you go all out to buy something you don't normally buy through the course of the year to put on for yourself, your friends, and your family, right? Okay, you can plug that in there. By the way, mine would include me, but anyway. A banquet of aged wine, the best wine. And I know, again, we go, wine, wow, boy, that's, we don't drink wine. The Israelites drank wine, and they looked forward to it. It was rich stuff. It was stuff you didn't get very often. I mean, they had their vineyards, and they could make it, and they all knew how to make it. But this is the age stuff. This is the good stuff. And choice pieces. This is talking about meat. It's fatty. That's the idea of the word there. It's fatty. The fatty meat. And you're like, ah, that's gross. I don't like fatty meat. Yeah, I know some of you do. You're like, yeah. <laughs> I don't. But when you're an Israelite and your diet, daily diet, consists of bread and gruel, and vegetables. I'm serious. That's your daily diet. And maybe at a festival, you get a little taste, you get to dip your finger in the fatty juices of some animal that was the fatted calf, or or something like that, or you uh, splurged and gave um, one of your best for a peace offering sacrifice, in which you get to have a part, meat was not often enjoyed. But when your main meal, your main diet, I should say, is grain and gruel and vegetables, going, oh yeah, we're having a feast, and it's like the best pieces of meat. All right, and then he says, with marrow, with marrow. Like, in the bone, the stuff, the gray stuff in the middle that we don't eat, They ate. It was rich. It was delicacy. Man, you got a piece of that. and Yeah, we're like, ah, oh no. But what he's describing here is the very best of the best for people that didn't get it. By the way, we're so overfed in our first world setting. We just don't understand what uh, the richness that's being promised here. But even compared to our, our wealth, and our amount of food, what God is describing here through the prophet Isaiah is going to be the best of the best. God says, this is what I'm providing. 
And notice what else is going to be accomplished, verse 8. Excuse me, verse 7. On this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. What is this covering? What is this veil that's over everybody? Verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. That's the veil. That's the covering. That's the thing that overshadows all of humanity is no matter what, death is coming, right? Death comes for all of us. And unless Christ returns very, very soon, and we're the generation alive to see it, we will all in this room die. We will physically die. That is what covers the nations and the peoples. That is what, over, what, what hangs over everybody. And part of this feast is God is saying, Death is done. Death's all done. No more death. You're on my mountain now. You're in my family now. I'm providing for you now. No more death. No more death. And notice what else. Verse 8. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. No more grieving. In God's kingdom. On God's mountain, at God's feast, no more grieving ever again. John, by the way, is actually a quote from this in Revelation 21, where he says, all over, death, all over, grieving, all over, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. This is what God provides. Verse 8, he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. To me, that one's huge. The reproach, the shame of sin, the thing that hangs on us and weighs. Yes, Christ uh, bled on that cross, suffered and died to take away our sin, but yet we still, we remember uh, what we've done. God doesn't hold it against us, but there's a reproach. We still sin in this flesh. God's going to take that all away. No more reproach, no more shame, no more death, no more tears, no more shame. I call that paradise. I call that glory. And it will be said on that day, notice the praise, verse 9. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord, Yahweh, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now put it all together, when Christ said, at his last supper, and he instituted the Lord's Supper, he says, you do this, right? You commemorate what I've done. You commemorate my Passover sacrifice until what? Until when? Right? Until my return. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to partake of this food, this meal again, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom then we will celebrate. He's talking about the Messianic feast. He's, Jesus is talking about Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. So when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, I know it's a long train, but let's connect the dots. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, he's saying we're looking ahead to a different feast. And Jesus had referred to that feast earlier in his ministry. We just didn't take the time to look at it. But Jesus kept talking about there's this banquet coming. There's this marriage supper coming. Blessed are those who are invited, who are going to be there, who are going to sit down with the patriarchs even at this feast. 
The feast talked about in Revelation 19, actually just before the passage I read as we began this morning. So Jesus is saying this supper, which is a community supper amongst us, is also a community supper with the Lord of hosts. So when we partake of this, what we're doing is we are fellowshipping together in Christ and as such are fellowshipping together with the triune Godhead. This is not just some ritual we go through once a month. This is not something we just do to plug in some time because it's what good churches do. This is our communion. Now we know the, the bread and the cup, there's nothing mystical or magical about them, right? They're reminders. But in those reminders, we are reminded that we commune in fellowship with God himself. Isn't that awesome news? And if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we're doing today. That's the glory of what we do this morning. And we're going to partake, but we're going to do it a little differently. We're going to pass them out as we usually do. But it's a community meal, so we're going to think together about some things. So if I could have the men to come up and, and help pass these out, that would be wonderful. So first of all, I'm going to say what I usually say, um, and I, it's appropriate to say, this, as we've just described, is a meal for those who are in fellowship with Christ. If that is not you, if you're not sure, uh, don't partake right now, but take the time to think about that and to put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. We'll take just a moment here, in just a moment, and we'll bow our heads and close our eyes and, and take some time to do business with God, to confess any unconfessed sin, to repent and, and know that we come with as best, as much as we know, with cleansed hearts. But then when we pass out the, the, the bread, I know it's a cracker, but when we pass that out, why don't you just hold on to it for a little bit? We're going we're gonna to fellowship around that for a moment. We're going to do the same thing again when we partake of the, the juice. Let's pray. Bow your heads, pray. We'll pray to, uh, just silently for a bit, and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for your son pierced and bloodied for us, his lifeblood pouring out for us, that we can know you and be brought near to you and enjoy communion, uh, community with the triune Godhead. Thank you, Father, for the body of Christ, our, our Passover lamb given for us. Lord, help us to be truly thankful Lord, forgive us for our sin and forgive us for any lack of community we have amongst us. Lord, draw us near, nearer to you through this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.